I've found that the key to recovery is not necessarily giving up any particular food, although I do have to say that almost universally, all the people that do well, they reduce the amount of processed food in their plant. The real key to overcoming food addiction or just overeating beyond your own best judgment is not necessarily giving up any particular food. It's giving up the spontaneous, whimsical, and emotional decisions about food. Inventory the areas of food that get you in trouble, and you set up an intellectual rule. Like with forethought and consideration, you make the rules, nobody else makes the rules. You define those conditions. Now that's regulated by your intellect. It doesn't matter what you feel. It doesn't matter what your inner enemy says. That tends to be the solution, is to move your difficult food decisions from your emotions to your intellect. Welcome to the Menopause Mastery Podcast, a show for women just like you who are ready for more health, vitality, passion, living life with a purpose. I created this show because I knew that women just like me in this second season of life, the season of menopause, are really tapping into their deepest desires. And we're ready to harness our physical and mental health and explore what our true passions are and peel back the layers to uncover exactly what we want out of life. I'm your host, Betty Murray, part geek, part magician, and your new medical bestie with a dash of sass. I love taking the complex science and making it easier to integrate into daily life. So let's join the journey to make this season the best ever. Welcome back to Menopause Mastery. Today I'm talking to Dr. Glenn Livingston. He is a veteran psychologist and was a longtime CEO of a multi-million dollar consulting firm, which has serviced several Fortune 500 clients in the food industry. You may have seen him or his company's previous work, theories, and research in major periodicals like the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, the Chicago Sun-Times, New York Daily News, and you may have also heard him on ABC, WGN, CBS Radio, and UPN-TV. He was disillusioned by what traditional psychology had to offer, especially those who struggle with food obsession, binging, and struggle with weight. And so Dr. Livingston spent several decades researching the nature of binging and overeating via the work with his patients, and he self-funded a research program with more than 40,000 participants. And today we're going to get into all of the nitty-gritty on binging, emotional eating, and how to shut that down so you feel like you're in control and you have control. Glenn, I am so excited to have you on the show. And actually, luckily, we're going to be really releasing this during the holiday season in 2023, which is when people often feel like everything goes off the rails. So I think if there was ever a podcast time for something to be released, this is the conversation. So everybody, listen up, share with your friends. We're going to dig in on some really important things. So I would love for you to explain how you got into psychology and how you sort of moved through that world, because you have a really cool background. I think I have a cool background, and my mom thought that too. I was born in a family of 17 psychotherapists. My mom and my dad and my sister and all of their spouses and my cousins and my uncles. And if something breaks in the house, we all know how to ask it how it feels and nobody really knows how to fix it. But that was always the most important thing to me. Like with everything that I've done in my career, I've always felt like I was a psychologist first and foremost, put on this earth to heal and to solve and to try to make things better. I married a marketer. So I 
me back up a little bit. I, I was an overeater myself. I'm not just a guy who decided I wanted to work with overeaters. I was almost 300 pounds and my triglycerides were over a thousand and the doctors would tell me I was going to die before I was 40 and all that kind of thing. And coming from the background that I came from, I figured it must be because there's a hole in my heart. And if I could fill that hole in my heart, then I could stop trying to fill the hole in my stomach. And so I took a traditional route and I went to all the best psychologists and psychiatrists and I confessed my soul. I took medication. I went to Overeaters Anonymous. I, anything you could imagine, I, I did. And it was get a little thinner and a lot fatter, a little thinner and a lot fatter. And it was a soulful journey. I think it it's a big part of who I am, and I learned a lot about myself along the way, but it didn't help with the overeating. I'm sorry, did you want to say something? No, yes. I'm just, I'm actually, I think it's interesting being a nutritionist. When you are in these fields, it's often the challenge that you yourself dealt with, which helps because then we know from a personal standpoint what people are going through. So yes, please go on. I sure as heck did. I'm also 6'4", and just genetically, modestly lucky in terms of my musculature. And so if I worked out a couple hours a day back then, I could eat whatever I wanted to. Whole boxes of muffins or a pizza or two, not a slice or two, or donuts, chocolate bars, whatever it was, it nailed down. If you got to the Woodbury Country Deli in the 90s sometimes and they were out of pizza and Pop-Tarts, I probably got there before you. And it's kind of a joke. And, and back then it was fun because I was thin and I was happy and I was working out a lot. And it was a like 18 and 22, 17, 22, I was fine. Then I got married and I was commuting two hours a day to go to graduate school and see patients. And I would come home and God forbid my wife would want to talk to me at the time. I am divorced now, not because of that. <laughs> and I didn't have two minutes a day to work out, much less two hours a day to work out. We were running a business. It was crazy. And so I started to get a little fatter, not right away, but I couldn't really adjust my food intake. I found that it really had a hold on me like a separate life of its own. And I'd be sitting with a suicidal patient and thinking, why can't I get the next pizza? And I, I never lost anybody. I compensated by working really hard and studying. And But I wasn't like 100% present. And that actually bothered me more and the weight. And thank God I figured that out after a while. Okay. Then fast forward a couple of decades. Over the years, my wife traveled for business. So we never had kids and I never commuted. I always worked at home. So once I was out of graduate school, I had a lot of time in my hands and I started a second career. I started consulting for basically big food and big pharma. I, I think I was on the wrong side of the war. I was helping to persuade people to eat junk. And I saw that they were spending millions of dollars to engineer these hyper palatable concentrations of starch and sugar and fat and salt and excitotoxins. And it was all geared to hit the bliss point in the reptilian brain without giving us enough nutrition to feel satisfied. And the result of that is addiction. And then the big advertising industry could package it up in a way that would hit these evolutionary buttons and make you think that the good stuff was in there. Like I remember a food bar manufacturer that they took the vitamins out of the bar and put the money into the packaging instead to make it shiny and diverse and colorful. And if you ran across these shiny, diverse colors in nature, this is why they say eat the rainbow, you're likely to get a diversity of micronutrients. But here they were taking the nutrients out. And it's not just them. It goes on across the industry, all this plausible deniability. It started to occur to me as I was edging up on 40 years old, maybe it wasn't really a purely psychological problem. Like they had this external force and all these tens of millions of dollars that were really aiming at my reptilian brain. And if you know a little bit about neurology, the reptilian brain doesn't know love. So here I am trying to love myself then, but the reptilian brain doesn't really know love. It looks at something in the environment and it says, do I eat that thing? Do I mate with it or do I kill it? It's like a bad college or anything game, eat, mate, yeah. or kill, right? It's the mammalian brain on top of that says before you eat, mate, or 
kill that thing, what impact is going to have on your tribe, the people that you love, the family members? And then a cortex on top of it says, before you eat meat or kill that thing, what impact will that have on your longer term goals like health, fitness, finances, spirituality, music, art, all the things that are really important to us as human beings. And in a way, I said to myself, this love yourself thin paradigm, what's happening is I'll, I'll be at Starbucks and I'll hear this voice on my head that says, go ahead and have some chocolate. You worked out hard enough. You didn't get, you won't get any weight. Start your silly chocolate rule again tomorrow. What I'm really doing is saying, oh my goodness, someone needs a hug. And I'm like letting go of mammalian brain in my neocortex. I'm just letting this thing run rampant. And I said, maybe what I need to do is be more of an alpha dog in my own mind. Now, back then I wasn't planning to work with overeaters. This is just for my own thing. And I did something kind of embarrassing. And I'm sure you read my introduction, so people know I have all these sophisticated credentials. But what I did, it's been years, I can't even say this anymore. What I did is I said, okay, I need to draw a really clear line in the sand so that I know when this thing inside me is active. And I want to control it the same way that I control my bladder. If my bladder said, you really have to pee right now, I'd say, I'm sorry, I'm talking to Betty. I'll take care of it afterwards, right? I'm in charge, not my bladder. I want to be in charge of this thing. So how am I going to know when it's active? I'll make a rule. Like I will never have chocolate on a weekday again. I could have it on the weekends up to three ounces, but I'll never have chocolate on a weekday again. That way, if I'm in Starbucks, I hear a voice that says, oh, it'll be just as easy to start tomorrow. I'll go and have a couple of bites. It won't hurt. I'll say, wait a minute. That's not me. That's my inner pig squealing for pig slop. I told you this was embarrassing. That's my pig squealing for pig slop. Chocolate on a weekday is pig slop. I don't need pig slop. I don't let farm Animals tell me what to do. As ridiculous as that sounded, as kind of hard, I wish I didn't call it a pig, I wish I called it something else, but I called it a pig. And as harsh as it sounds, it flipped my paradigm. I was no longer thinking about loving myself more. I was thinking, how do I take control? How can I be the alpha dog of my own mind? And it would also wake me up at the moment of impulse. It would provide this space between stimulus and response where I could make the right decision if I want to. I could remember why I made the rule in the first place. I wish I could say it was a miracle and I always made the right decision after that. That's not what happened. It just provided the opportunity for a lot of experimentation. And I eventually figured it out with that space that it provided. There are a million more things that happened to get me thin along the years. But basically that was the root of it. And 2015, I was starting to get divorced and I decided that I needed to do something different. I was just going to do something meaningful. So I kind of wrote my story and put it in a book. I wrote it as kind of an allegory of me versus the pig. I kept eight years of journals of all the things the pig said and why it was wrong. Like when it says it'll be just as easy to start tomorrow, that's not true because by the principle of neuroplasticity, if you have a craving today and you have the thought just start tomorrow and then you indulge the craving, you will have reinforced the craving and reinforced the thought. So you're more likely to say start tomorrow and you're more likely to have a stronger chocolate craving the next day. And so I'd write these things down and I would find that would give me even more space between stimulus and response would kind of calm me down and I could make better choices. Most of that's how I recovered. I published the book in 2015. Now I had this dual career in marketing. I was working with marketing advertising and I actually owned an advertising agency for a while. So I knew what I was doing, but it took off on its own after a little while. And now it's eight books and over a million readers later, over 20,000 reviews in all those books. And people don't recognize me by name necessarily, but they can point at me at a bookstore and go, you're the pig guy, aren't you the pig guy? Which is not really what you want to happen on a first date, but what are you going to do? That's my story. <laughs> That's why I got into this. You opened up the doors to so many conversation pieces. And so first off, thank you for your candor and just vulnerability. I think people that struggle with any health concern, it's 
the vulnerability part is we often kind of wrap whatever we're working on in shame. But I would say there is nothing more emotionally hard for people to deal with than to adjust their thoughts around food cravings, binging, because the medical system as a whole, for the most part, says it's a willpower thing. You're just slovenly, you're lazy, you're not willing to do all that. They, they wrap it in this, you have a lack of willpower and it's all within your control. And you just explained so beautifully in your own story that our body is wired to go after things that are palatable, beautiful, exciting colors and all those other things. And it's not a matter of willpower. It's a matter of you got to understand your how your body's wired. So let's talk a little bit about kind of that hyper palatability in case somebody hasn't heard that before and the excitotoxins and how that really works in the brain is so they kind of understand the mechanism. Okay. I'm not a medical doctor, so I'm a little bit out of my I'll jump in when necessary. Okay. okay. <laughs> I, it has to do with the dopamine system, which regulates our experience of pleasure and vision. And when i'll try to keep it in simple terms when you give someone a chocolate bar every day the first day you give it to them it's incredibly pleasurable but that chocolate bar doesn't exist in nature you can't find a tree that grows chocolate bars with all the sugar and theobramine and vanillin and caffeine you can't find that in nature and so it overstimulates your taste buds and it overstimulates your dopamine system so you go wow there's just nothing it seems like there's nothing better the first time you have it however is a survival advantage for the brain to find calories from new sources. And so when you present the same source over and over again, it creates a little bit less dopamine and you experience a little, little less pleasure in your taste buds. I think this has something to do with the cingulate gyrus. I, I forget exactly. But basically, your pleasure system down-regulates. When you have a chocolate bar every day for a month, by the end of the month, you, your pleasure system is down-regulated so much that you no longer really experience fruits and vegetables as sweet and delicious. Now you need that hyper-concentrated form and you're actually looking for more because you've down-regulated. Some people relate more to down-regulation when I talk about how I used to sleep underneath the subway in graduate school, my first year of graduate school. And the first week I couldn't get any sleep. Two months later, I couldn't even hear the subway because my brain said, we can't be alerting on this stimulator all the time. It's the same thing. Now, thankfully, when I moved away from that apartment underneath the subway, my system upregulated, and then I was more sensitive to the sounds around me again. The same thing will happen if you have less chocolate. If you have it once a week, if you decide not to have it at all, then your dopamine system and your taste buds, I think there's research that your taste buds double in sensitivity within, and you will start to find the natural pleasures of natural foods better for you. This is why, by the way, that most people feel like they're stuck in a trap where they just can't lose weight because most people in order to lose weight, they're going to have to eat more natural foods. Like wh whether it's fruit and vegetables, whether it's lean meats, whatever your beliefs are, you're going to have to eat more natural foods and less processed foods. But the processed foods have gotten us so hooked on that overstimulation and the and our brains have downregulated. There's even research now that this is responsible for some part of depression, that it seems to leap. You could, you eat processed foods all the time it not only downregulates your ability to experience pleasure with food, it downregulates your ability to experience pleasure, period. And so I've had the experience, and please work with your psychiatrist or medical doctor if you're on medication, but I've had the experience of people helping them to start eating well again. And six months later, they're saying, I don't really feel like I need this antidepressive medication anymore. 
that's the mechanics of it. That there's the good news is that your brain is very malleable and it adjusts. And there's also research that says two years after you adopt to a new diet, you're going to be telling everybody that it's the best tasting thing in the world. So even though it feels you need that chocolate bar just to feel normal, you really don't. You'll go through a short period of withdrawal and then other things are going to start tasting good again. So does that, yes. answer, your, does that answer your question? Yes, it does. And I think I was reading in your book, Defeat Cravings, Defeat Your Cravings. And it was the story of Frank talking to his wife. They had gone to a diner. And he had gotten something in the diner and he took one or two bites and he was like, whoa, this is way too pleasurable. I can't eat any more than this. And I think you said it was like, if it's too good, it's no good. Right. So that's yeah, that, going to absorb it. Yeah. He was an old mentor in Okash in the 1990s. And the brain is set up, like I said, to respond to unexpected pleasure. So much so that if you experience a new food that's rich in calories and flavor and fat, you, it's enough to form a new craving within one day, a new habit within one, just one try. And so he would say, oh, it's, this is too good. It's no good. I can't do it because he didn't want the craving. You could use that in your favor if you want to. You can do a lot of research and come up with a dozen or two dozen recipes that are on your food plan. Like I eat whole foods plant-based. And so I know a whole bunch of recipes and you can rotate them infrequently enough that it feels unexpected. And then your brain will create cravings for those foods that you know are okay. And so you can experience the pleasure on your plan rather than off your plan. I always say, why do you want to give your money to some fat cat in a white suit with a mustache that's laughing all the way to the bank with these bags and boxes and containers? What? Why not figure out how to do this for yourself? You'll crave your stuff instead of their stuff. And it's so much less suffering. Oh, yeah, definitely. So, okay, so this is where I want to go in. And I want you to... Because you have a unique view into the food industry and advertising industry, right? Because you worked with them for years. And I read in your book, you were hoping that you would get far enough along that you could influence for good. And you were like, wait a minute. I don't that was the idea. That was the idea. They throw enough money at you. I, I have to say it was hard to say no, but eventually I did. Yeah. Having been in the, the medical world for 20 years, I've have felt like Sisyphus pushing a boulder up the hill. I'm like, I'm going to get influential enough. I'm going to get enough groundwork underneath me to help change medicine. Same sort of thing. And sometimes you have to just understand that, especially in the United States, money talks. And I think a lot of people don't understand what excitotoxins are. And I can jump in from a biochemical standpoint. Not just sugar, salt, fat, but we have extraordinary amount of flavorings, food additives, and other things. And they really trick the brain. Can you talk a little bit about that too? Because I think people don't realize that we basically have drug-like substances in our food. There are things that can turn off your ability to know when you're hungry and full. There, there are flavor enhancers and there are texture enhancers. And we don't really eat food in our culture anymore. We eat food-like substances. Uh, I think it's even legal. I think I've seen instances where it's legal to put cardboard into the food system. I, I don't think I could recite chapter and verse about the particular excitotoxins, and maybe I should do a little study there. But yeah, I saw enough to know it was bad stuff and that the more I could help people get away from the bags and boxes and containers, the better they did. Absolutely. It's funny. I travel fairly extensively, and I, I remember being in a grocery store in, outside Paris and picking up a box of Kraft macaroni and cheese and flipping it over and recognizing very quickly that they have about 20% of the ingredients that we have in America on their food, right? Because yeah. other countries do not allow the degree of food manipulation that we do in the United States. 
And then all you have to do is look at our waistlines and look at our depression and say all those things and go, okay, the food is part of the problem, right? It is definitely part of the problem. So now I want to jump in. So everybody, if you haven't heard that, stop eating things with boxes, bags, labeling. I always or reduce say, it. Or, or reduce it. Yeah. yeah. I always say you don't see somebody on TV advertising a tomato, right? There's no money in it. The processed food industry is about seven and a half trillion large. The produce industry is something like 24 billion. It's like by a factor of 20. There are five to 7,000 messages about processed foods coming at us over the internet and the airwaves. There may be a half dozen about eating more fruits and vegetables. There's, there's just no money in advertising a tomato. It's just not there. No, it's just definitely not there. So let's talk, because so a lot of people, they go, okay, I recognize that I have a thing for chocolate. I recognize that I'm being manipulated, right, by the food itself and then by the advertising and everything we see. So let's talk a little bit about what are some of the enemy excuses people have for sort of jumping into this and how can they diffuse a few of those? Okay. So when you say an enemy excuse, I just want to make sure people understand that I'm defining the reptilian brain when it's when your survival drive is kind of hijacked by industry or hijacked towards something you don't want to be doing, that there's this voice of justification inside that says, just start your silly diet tomorrow. So start tomorrow is one of the biggest things that the inner pig, your inner reptile will say. It will also say one bite won't hurt. And I like to say that one bite is a tragedy because it's the difference between who's in charge, me or my pig, right? If I say that I will only ever have chocolate on the weekends and then I allow my pig to convince me to do it during the week. I'm really saying you're in charge. It's kind of like putting a toddler in charge. It's not really thinking things through. I've found that the key to recovery is not necessarily giving up any particular food, although I do have to say that almost universally, all the people that do well, I've worked with over 2,000 people, by the way, all the people that do well, they reduce the amount of processed food in their plant. But the real key to overcoming food addiction or just overeating beyond your own best judgment is not necessarily giving up any particular food. It's giving up the spontaneous, whimsical, and emotional decisions about food. So if you inventory the areas of food that get you in trouble and you set up an intellectual rule, like with forethought and consideration, you make the rules, nobody else makes the rules. What role do you want chocolate to play in your life? What role do you want a potato chip to play in your life? I only want to have one small bag twice a week. Okay. So you define those conditions. Now that's regulated by your intellect. It doesn't matter what you feel. It doesn't matter what your inner enemy says. That tends to be the solution is to move your difficult food decisions from your emotions to your intellect. And people feel relieved by that because they say, oh, this guy's not telling me I have to live on dirt and rocks the rest of my life. I can still eat some of the things that I love, but I need to look at where I'm getting into trouble and make more intellectual decisions about it. Yeah. Uh, oh, go ahead. Sorry, please. You asked me. The question you asked me was, what are some of the things that trick people? Start tomorrow is a really big deal. So not only can you say that it will actually be harder to start tomorrow, you could also tell your pig, how about you just start tomorrow? You think I should have one more bad day. What if I have one more good day? And if I, if I want to eat something bad, I'll feed you something bad tomorrow. And then you sit down and you look at your plan and you say, under what conditions am I willing to have what my pig was bothering me about? And you write it out and you wait 24 to 48 hours for that to take effect. That moves the decision from your impulses to your intellect and it disempowers, disempowers your pig. So how about you start tomorrow, Mr. Pig? Not, how about not me? There's something I call the confuse and conquer squeal, where the pig will have you jumping from diet to diet in a search for the 
perfect human species specific diet. Now, I think that probably does exist, but I'll tell you that more damage is done from people reading diet book after diet book and eating really crappy in the meantime. And so I tell them, look, the grass isn't greener around the other side. The grass is greener where it's watered. Pick one that you think is reasonably accurate and stick to that 100%. It's better that you pick something that's 80% of perfect and stick to it to 100% than that you have anarchy because you haven't decided what diet you should be on. So the grass isn't greener on the other side. The grass is greener where it's watered. Don't let your pig try to confuse and conquer you. So th those are some examples of the things that the pig will say to keep you running and, and keep you seeding it. Yes. I'm so glad you said that about, I'm a nutrition professional, researcher, PhD researcher, and been in the industry for over 20 years. And most of the people that I see coming into my banished belly fat for women group or our clinic or online, the, they are well-versed. I always tell our new clinicians, I'm like, no, they're well-versed. They've read every book, right? They've tried every diet. And I kind of look at it, it's like almost no offense to anybody struggling with this health concern, but it's like diet schizophrenia. Like every day it's something new and you got 50 different <laughs> thoughts and diet it keeps you, yeah, because it keeps you in this level of confusion so that leaves you just at the mercy of either indecision or, like you said, your inner pig is going crazy, just going, exactly. I'm going to keep you confused. Or they get more and more narrow in their dietary intake, right? So in order to control things, right, I'm going to wrap my hand around it so tightly, which means that everything must be perfect. I'm going to keep removing foods. I'm going to keep narrowing foods. I'm going to keep narrowing down my diet. And then I have no capacity to really eat anything else. And then it starts to affect your life in a negative way because you can even have orthorexia on the other side. But yeah, now so you don't go out. Yeah. You can't go out. Nobody wants you around because you're just you're 45 minutes to order something at a restaurant. And I have food stuff. I, it's, it can go to an extreme. And, and I think so many people struggle with that because we're bombarded with so many messages about that. So I have another question about that, too. Do you think because I just did a live on this and I talked about it on my podcast last week a little bit. Do you think it's also rooted in this urge for perfectionism? I hear that all the time. I can't start now because the next two weeks are holidays, or I have to travel, or there is also this sort of psychological gamesmanship internally where we're like, okay, I'm going to continue doing my behavior because I'm looking for the perfect time for everything to align yeah. and the stars to align to do something. The pig doesn't want to live in a cage and it will put off having you adopt a discipline with food forever. And the only time you can ever eat healthy is now, so you always have to use the present moment to be healthy. But I'd like to say a little bit more about perfectionism if I could, because I think I have a unique angle on it. The general advice in the culture is that you should strive for progress, not perfection, um, because nobody's perfect and you're going to make mistakes. And see, that's true. And progress, not perfection is a good mindset to have after you've made a mistake and you're analyzing what went wrong so you can aim at the target better. When, Olymp when an Olympic archer, who only hits the bullseye 30 to 40% of the time, by the way, when they miss the bullseye, they say, by how much, in what direction? Okay, progress, not perfection. How do I make it better next time? But then they don't get up and say, maybe I'll hit the bullseye, maybe I won't. They're not saying progress, not perfection, like I, a real winner. They become one with the bullseye. They purge their mind of doubt and insecurity. They commit with perfection. So they commit with perfection, but they forgive themselves for digging it. They see the arrow going into the bullseye before they let go of the arrow. The reason you have to do that with food, let's say that I say, I am never going to have chocolate on a weekday again. I have to really mean never. 
Because if I think I'm just going to try for a little while until I don't feel like it anymore, progress, not perfection, guess what I'm going to be doing on Thursday afternoon, right? So what I say is that we want to harness the energy of perfectionism in our favor. We don't want to relinquish it altogether, but we do want it to be, develop the ability to drop it after we've made a mistake so that we can see what are the corrections we need to make. It's okay to feel pain when you make a mistake. Just you need the pain of touching a hot stove. If you accidentally touch a hot stove, it better hurt you because otherwise it won't get your attention. You won't know where it is. But you're not supposed to say, oh my God, I'm a pathetic hot stove toucher. I might as well put my whole hand down it. You're not supposed to perseverate on that guilt. You're not supposed to let that guilt get stuck in you. You're supposed to turn guilt into responsibility. You're supposed to take notice of what happened, make adjustments so you can aim with perfection again. Commit with perfection, forgive yourself, with dignity. That's that's my view. I love that because you're right, because otherwise then you're still playing that sort of negotiation gamesmanship with yourself. Yeah. Absolutely. And again, like I said, there's two things like food you can't negotiate with because it's something you always have to eat. It's not like you can abstain from it, right? We always have to do it. It's kind of like alcohol too. It's the only drug that you have to defend not doing. Yeah. Right, 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 right. Yeah. And you're going to take the lion out of the cage and walk it around the block three times a day, right? Right. Exactly. Exactly. So I want to talk a little bit about when you're dealing with other people, because this is the thing I hear a lot is we don't eat in in singularity. We don't eat alone. At least I hope most people don't eat alone because we need community. Blue Zones taught us anything that community is a huge part of it. And a lot of times, depending on who we hang out with, our resolve, our inner pig has more control or less control. Let's talk a little bit about how people can navigate dealing with those situations that are extremely likely to have them sort of let their inner pig out and go crazy. So first of all, you need to recognize that it's an authentic pressure, an authentic, legitimate pressure that everybody feels. And it has more to do, it's not just that other people want to eat what they want to eat and so they want to make you feel guilty if you don't eat that. It's more like the fabric of society is built into our breaking bread together and eating the same thing. And I think 100,000 years ago, every member of the tribe's labor was necessary. There wouldn't be all this abundance and choice available. We would have a hunter or harvest. There'd be one thing available. And if you refused to eat, you could get you know, too weak to contribute to the tribe or you could get sick or become a burden. And so I don't think it was like, what will you be having for dinner tonight? I think it was more like, eat this or we'll kill you get back in line or we'll kill you. Right? Yeah. And I think that even though everybody knows we don't live in that environment today, we still have that kind of built into our DNA, that kind of tribal, communal, let's break bread together kind of thing. And so it's a very authentic pressure. And I think you need to recognize that. As are holidays and travel and spontaneous work meetings and things outside of your normal environment. So the way that I've learned to deal with that is several fold. First of all, most people seem to be capable of moderation. One out of three people can't do it, so I would recommend they don't do this. But let's say you're someone who just never eats bread. You adopted a rule that said, I'll never have bread again just because you're out of control with bread, right? And believe it or not, there's no doctor that's going to diagnose you with a bread deficiency. And then in your normal, every day-to-day environment, you're perfectly capable of doing that. You feel really great. It's working for you. It's a simple discipline. It makes a big difference. It signals to you that you're under control and other things starting get, getting better turned out to be a really good, I tell people to start with one simple rule, something easy to start with. But then you wind up going out to dinner with a couple of friends or colleagues and everybody's having bread and butter and it's right there in the table and it's, they bring out this oil and garlic and it's just so delicious. 
and you just find you're out of control. One way to adapt to that is to say, okay, um, when I'm at home, it's kind of like I'm doing squats with no weight on the bar. And I got really good at that. And it's good to do squats with no weight on the bar. You can build your strength and work on your form. And it's perfectly fine to do that or with low weight on the bar. But now you're going to go to the gym and they're going to load you up with all kinds of, of weights. So you have to be prepared. You might decide to make it easier, give yourself a little more support and say, I will never have bread again, except at a restaurant with other people, but no more than once a week and no more than two slices. So you, what you've done is you've actually drawn a circle around your bullseye. You're like, when I live, go back to the archery analogy again, instead of aiming for the bullseye, you're aiming for this wider circle that's easier. You've also taken the decisions out of it. See, willpower is the ability to make good decisions and we can only make so many good decisions every day. If you have made your decisions before you walk into the restaurant, then you don't have to use willpower to get through. I actually know a woman who was a food critic and she had a big trouble with food. And we decided that she was going to go on this 90-day trip eating out three times a day. And she had to eat out three times a day. And she decided that she was going to log everything into MyFitnessPal before she walked into the restaurant. And she had some special rules for what's the substitute if something changed. And she did perfectly. She came back. She was so happy with that because she took all the willpower out of it. And the restaurant's entire business model rests on seducing your pick like the lighting and the smells and the way that they present the dessert tray and the way they describe the specials. It's all built. As, so don't walk into a battlefield with a plastic helmet. Think through what you're going to do and make your decisions beforehand. And if you want to make conditional rules to, to loosen up a little bit, then draw the boundary around that so you know when to start and when to stop before you get there. That's why I tell people to deal with the restaurants. Some people just can't have bread, period. Some people are so addicted to flour, they just can't do it. For those people, I always tell them the story of a woman who owned a bakery and she came to the conclusion she was addicted to sugar and flour and she couldn't have any sugar or flour. And I said, how in the world do you do that? Because she was very successful when she made that decision. How do you do that? Because you not only have to be around it, you're going to make it seem sexy. You've got to talk about how delicious it is and how good it smells and you have to present it really well. Just for This is your whole livelihood. She said, oh, that's easy. I just look at that and I say, that is not my food. That is not my food. You might have to do that. You can also eat before you go to the restaurant. If the smells are too tempting to you, you can put a little bit of Vicks Vapor Rub on your upper lip and you won't be tempted by the smells as much. You can give yourself a rule that you take a five-minute outside break while everybody's sitting at the restaurant. So you can go and breathe some fresh air and think and you could have, you could have a little mantra with you. I always use the present moment to be healthy or you could take what we call a 7-Eleven breath. If you breathe out for longer than you breathe in, eventually... You stimulate, I think it's called a vagal response, where your brain says, this is not an emergency. We don't have to act because if there was an emergency, you're running from a hungry bear. You're taking your brain out of action. So if you take a five-minute break during the restaurant meal and walk outside, don't check your phone, don't talk to anybody, just walk outside for a minute, take a couple of breaths. A lot of things you can do. Most people don't put the work to think it through beforehand, then when they do much better. Absolutely. It's funny, I've been uh, gluten-free for almost two decades because I had colitis and celiac unknown for a long time. And it was very funny because I've never been naturally thin from about teenage years on. It was always a struggle. Of course, I'm a nutritionist by training. And so I always had this sort of love-hate relationship with bread. It was one of those things that was the food, any kind of white flour product. It was either in my diet or not. So I was either white knuckling it or not having it prior to being diagnosed. And I hated the bread basket being on the table because as soon as it was on the table, it was something that like my eyes dart back to it constantly. And I'm like, don't touch it. But when I found out that I couldn't eat it because it was actually causing health problems for me. So I have to go off of it or it's going to drive this autoimmune disease that don't kill me early, quite frankly. And I'm, let's say, nine 
90 days out. And I remember walking through this grocery store that has one of the biggest like bakery sections in the city with my husband. And it was funny because I was standing in it where I normally would have been just like touching, figuring out which baguette I'm buying. It, I had no like no draw to it. Right. The drug like effect had finally been worn off. And I always tell people like that was the best thing that ever happened to me. Really, honestly, diagnosed with celiac because all of a sudden, like I didn't have to do that gamesmanship as much. We don't crave things we know we can never have. If you it's like giving a prisoner a life sentence. Eventually they lose hope because hope is a waste of energy and in that situation. And the brain wants to conserve energy. So if you know you really can't have it, the brain will stop craving it eventually. Same yeah. thing with people that go kosher or go vegan. They have these moral values and it's no longer an option. And they say they don't crave it. It's really fine. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I think one of the other things that I think I hear a lot too is we do genetics play a role. And I know definitely some gene combinations make us a little more likely to have dopamine receptor issues, dopamine drive, and all those other things. How much have you run into that? Because I know you did studies on people because I hear from a lot of my clients, I have this tendency, but let's say my half-sister doesn't. She doesn't seem to have any of this emotional eating and cravings. Now, I didn't do studies to specifically tease out the role of genetics, but I have researched that a little bit. And I think the role of genetics accounts for a little less than half the variance in obesity, which means that you could be born with a bad deck, but it's not the only thing that's important. Diet and lifestyle are more important. I'm never going to be a bikini model. It's just not going to happen. For me to stay under 10 percent body fat it like i'm around 15 right now it's too hard as long as i'm okay and my doctor's okay with where i am then i'm okay i have to be a little more disciplined than most people probably have to be with their food i tend to gain weight quickly so i lost that genetic lottery but you know what i'm tall i've got a lot of energy i've got some longevity in my family and there are very few obese 80 and 90 year olds so i plan to live out the genetic cards i have that'll keep me living long and i'm going to fight the ones that want me to be obese until my dying day i had a friend named Odine in college. Odine, if you're listening, hi. She could eat whatever she wanted to. She would just sit and munch at M&Ms all day. And I was very jealous. All of us have a friend like that. Like I said, I've always had to watch what I eat and I had to really be conscious of what I was doing. Like I gained weight very quickly. I have a friend of mine that has a diet like a six-year-old left wide open at Disneyland. You know what I mean? With a credit card. She eats everything and anything and is this big around just a but, toothpick. But there are two ways to look at that. You, yeah. you could look at the downside and we look at how we feel deprived of all the things are doing. We don't know how those people turned out health-wise. Now that we're older, I think I'm older than you, but we don't really know how they turned out. I'm almost 60. Okay. I'm almost, I'll be 54 in a couple of weeks. Oh. Okay. So, okay. So go to your room. But in a way, we could be grateful that we're given this set of genetics where we have to be more careful because we got a lot of the dangerous foods out of our diet earlier. Remember Gilda Radner did a skit on Saturday Live that said, oh, men prefer skinny women with cancer to fat women without cancer. And I think that if you have a really high metabolism, you can eat whatever you want to. Everybody thinks it's great, but you're, then you're taking in all these processed foods and the odds of getting all of these diet preventable diseases goes way up. So yeah, I don't know. Is that luck or is it just a different set of cards? And I think there are things we can be grateful for. And it's better to be grateful than to be bitter because it's just a different way. We can't do anything about it. Yeah. Skinny doesn't always mean healthy, right? Yeah. It just doesn't. So that's definitely true. So I would love for you to let my listeners know how they can find you. I know you've got some free gifts for my listeners also. Tell them about that. 
So I can get you a free copy of Defeat Your Cravings at Defeat Your Com. The Kindle, Nook, and PDF formats are free. Go to DefeatYourCravings.com and click on the big blue button. There's an awful lot we didn't get to talk about today. Also, because this is a diet agnostic program, you can do it on any reasonably nutritionist diet. You can't do it if you want to have one meal a day. You can't do it if you want to just eat protein drinks or something like that. That's, it's not going to work. But any reasonably nutritious diet, you can make this work for. And so we created a set of food plan starter templates for most of the most popular nutritional philosophies. So there's one for point counters and calorie counters and whole foods people versus carnivores. One for just about everybody there. And because I know this sounds a little harsh and weird, like why does Betty have this guy with a pig inside of him on her show? I know it sounds a little harsh and weird, but first of all, we get a 90% reduction in overeating it in one month over the people that we studied over many years. We've got the chops to prove it. And secondly, it's actually a very compassionate process which takes people from feeling hopeless and despairing and they're never going to get things under control to feeling hopeful and confident and enthusiastic in just one session. So we recorded a whole bunch of sessions that you could listen to. It's all free, thefeaturecravings.com. Anything else you could want, we do have paid programs and I have Audible and paperback and hardcover and things like that at traditional charges. But go to defeatyourcravings.com, click the big blue button, and we'll hook you up. That's awesome. Glenn, this has been such an awesome conversation. I could go on for hours and just pick your brain and help everybody, but we have to help people also go to work and do the other things they do when they're listening to their podcast. So I think all they should do is listen to us 24 hours a day. I do too. I want to thank you for being on Menopause Mastery. Thank you for having me. It was delightful. Yes, thank you. And everybody, if you're listening, I would love for you to do a couple things for me. Number one, hit the subscribe button so you don't miss out on any of this episodes and it really helps us reach out to people. If you found this to be an awesome podcast, share it with a friend. And if you would love to help me out, also give me a review. And we'll be back next week on Menopause Mastery. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Menopause Mastery podcast. You are why I'm here and I am so very grateful. Hit subscribe so you don't miss any wisdom on creating the most exceptional life on our terms. If this episode has helped you in any way, please share it with a friend to spread the love and together we rise. You can follow me on social media at Betty Murray PhD and you can reach me online at BettyMurray.com. 